Welcome to the show, everybody. Hope you're having a lovely morning. Um, Really phenomenal stuff for you today. So uh, the View hosts lashed out at Kirsten Cinema. That's something else. Um, MSNBC and CNN both flipped on corporate Democrats. It's hard to believe, but it is true. Biden responds to Kirsten Cinema's bathroom incident. AOC babbles incoherently about her present Iron Dome vote. We got a brand new COVID pill that works, and they're already price gouging us over it. A man was executed, even though he has a child's IQ in Missouri. So uh, just get ready for the show today. It's a big one. And also, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar went after LeBron James over his vaccine comments. Um, Surprising and interesting, and uh, we're going to go through that. Actually, oh, shit. That's one of the stories. I needed to pull up, and I didn't pull up, so let me do this right now. So professional, always so professional. Never last-minute stuff from me, but it's okay because that story is much later on anyway. But here we go. I'm pulling it up as we speak. Anyway, all right. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. We'll jump right into it. Um, And I'm going to do that with, believe it or not, The View. I enjoyed this clip so much that I'm actually leading with it. The View is not my cup of tea, to say the least. Most of the time we've covered them on this show, I've gone after them and disagreed with them. And um, that goes without saying. I'm sure all of you know that. But out of nowhere, shocking and surprising, they decided to turn on Kirsten Cinema, even after the bathroom incident when everybody in polite society 
all the civility and decorum humpers were crying for her. Um, turns out they paused for a minute and reflected and said, yeah, but why are these protesters going after her? Why is she obstructing the entire Build Back Better agenda, which includes things like universal pre-K and childcare and free college and all these wonderful policies? Who is she really representing? So I'm just as surprised by this as you are. This is an amazing clip. Take a look, and then we'll discuss. First of all, and second of all, 
This is over 10 years. It's over 10 years. When it is something someone wants, they find the money. They find the money. And this is not, you know, and if it doesn't get done now, it's not going to get done. Because it's not going to happen. Your roads, your, all of this stuff, it's not going to get fixed. So it's very simple to me. Yeah, I'm going to follow you wherever you are if you're not responding to me as someone who elected you. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to keep you in office because I tell you, when I start voting and you've been null and void and nowhere to be found, you're out because you're not taking care of business. When you tell me Arizona says, Listen, we want this. 66. This is your job. Your job is not to play with mansion. Your job is to take care of what we need in Arizona. And what we need in wherever you are, that's your job. That's why we put you in, because we thought you could do it better. Here you are. <laughs> Just blocking stuff. And what's mind-boggling is that this, that mansion's constituents can use all of the things I just looked yes, at. What did I just watch? It's like the ghost of Kyle Kalinske got into every view host except that one who was still massively cucked and defeated in the argument. What? So let's run through it. I mean, almost every part of this was fantastic. First point was, in, in the discussion about the protesters who followed Kirsten Cinema into the bathroom to say, you better support this bill, they say, well, Cinema's been MIA, so what do you want these people to do? You don't do nothing? Sit there and take it? I mean, Kirsten Cinema hasn't held a town hall in three years. When constituents call her office, they can't get through to her. It's impossible to get through to her. At the same time, she's going around and doing a cocktail circuit tour of corruption, raising $5,800 a pop from all the corporations who are lined up against this bill. She just took $750,000 from Big Pharma, and then she turned around and opposed lower drug prices, which is something that she previously not only supported, but ran ads on. Hey, I'm, gonna, I'm going to D.C. to lower your drug prices, and now all of a sudden, whoops, totally disagree. But don't look at the $750,000 I just took from Big Pharma. Even the view hosts are like, really? We're talking about decorum and civility and following somebody into a bathroom? Like that's the most egregious thing that's ever happened in the world? Guys, don't get it twisted. And I've said this a million times. I'll keep saying it. Is the tactic itself borderline? Well, absolutely. You know, nobody wants to get followed in the bathroom, obviously. But when people make the point, like, what if it was your mom, or what if it was your sister, or what if it was your girlfriend, or whatever, that's a terrible point! Because my mom, my sister, and my girlfriend didn't take $750,000 from Big Pharma and kill lower drug prices, which will lead to people dying. Uh, do you understand me? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? People will die because Kirsten Cinema is corrupt. They will pass away. They will ration their insulin and not make it. They will cut their pills in half and not make it. I'm more outraged at the civility and decorum breach of people dying from high drug prices than I am about people hearing somebody tinkle or fart. And if you don't like that, you can go cry about it. So it's just it's not a good point. The substance of a protest also matters. Yeah, sure, if some right-winger followed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez into the bathroom to chastise her for not being pro-war or some shit, then that would be stupid, and I would argue against the substance of the protest and what they're telling her to do. But if somebody follows George W. Bush into the bathroom and says, hey man, you're a war criminal, as long as nobody gets hurt and nobody gets punched in the face and there's nobody touching anybody and there's no physical altercation, I'm going to say, that guy's right. 
and yay, followed him into the bathroom, but I don't really care, because what's much worse is the hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians that George W. Bush is responsible for killing. He has blood on his hands. So people are trying to do this weird, like, hypocrisy gotcha on this. There is zero hypocrisy. So let me get this straight. We all agree. Violence, violence against people for political ends is wrong. Correct. I agree. That's called terrorism. Most people agree property destruction is wrong as well. So you can't do that either. Okay, so you can't do violence, violence. You can't do property destruction. What's left? What's left is be rude and mean and direct and upfront and shame your congresspeople and make them feel uncomfortable until that you force them to represent the people and do their job. That's all that's left. That's it. And now people turn around and say, you can't do that either. Fuck off. Fuck off with your civility and decorum nonsense. Okay, uh, they go on to say, and I'm amazed they pointed this out on The View. Remember how terrible The View treated Bernie and, you know, how much they were pro-Hillary. This is, so normally they're terrible. But here they say, Manchin and Cinema are the ones who went back on the deal, which is true. Remember, oh, the deal was announced, reconciliation deal. You got the infrastructure package, about $1 trillion. Then you got the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure package, the reconciliation deal. The bills are linked. That was the deal. So now they pull out of it, and some idiots are trying to blame the progressives. They're just sticking to the original deal. They are of their word. Uh, then they cite poll numbers. They bring up the specific provisions, which, by the way, it's a huge problem. Media Matters uh, did a thing on this. Most of the coverage of this bill is solely horse race coverage. Hey, where do the, the centrist Democrats stand? Where does the, do the progressive Democrats stand? And where do the Republicans stand? And they say, oh, the $3.5 trillion number, and they talk about that number. Very few uh, pieces on this really discuss everything that's in the bill. Because if you do discuss what's in the bill, people love it. There's a new poll that came out the other day. Only like 30, 30 to 35% opposition to this bill in the country. It's nearly 60% support in the entire country. That means you have the entire left supports it, no matter if they're moderate or left-left. Independent support, and even a lot of Republican support. Almost half of Republicans support a lot of this stuff. So when you talk about the specifics, well, then it paints a clear picture as to who the good guys are. So most of the media is not doing that. Well, shockingly, they're doing it on The View. Um, they ask the question, who is cinema representing? I have the answer. The answer is her donors. Um, they talk about tax cuts for the rich. They weren't paid for. So if you want to pay for this thing, just raise taxes on the rich. 100% correct. Uh, they tell Kirsten Cinema, you're in the wrong party. They accurately bring up the bill, even though it's $3.5 trillion, is over 10 years. Over 10 years. So that's way less than we spend on the military, for example. And then it, it's pointed out, if it's not done now, it's not going to get done. Because what's going to happen? Democrats are probably going to get wiped down in the midterms, no matter what, even if they pass this thing, because they're at such a, such a disadvantage with voting rights and gerrymandering and things of that nature. So when's it going to get done? A decade from now? Two decades from now? Can the climate wait that long? Can the American people wait that long with our terrible social safety net? Probably not. So, yeah, when is it going to get done if it's not done right now? Listen, the final point I want to make about this, and I think this is probably the most important point, is strength works. Strength works. If, if this should teach the left anything, it's that. So, and you guys know this has been my beat for years now. That's why I was one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats. Now, in many ways, they've let me down. On this reconciliation bill, the way they're playing it, they have not let me down because they held the line. And when you argue from a position of strength, when you puff your chest out and say, no, I'm right, you can go screw yourself, people go, 
damn, that's some confidence. And then they're curious about why you're doing what you're doing, and maybe they look into it. And that's exactly what happened here. They saw strength among the progressives. They looked into why are they doing what they're doing, and they accurately come away with the fact that Manchin and Cinema are the problem. Now, don't get it twisted. I think one of the reasons why they, you know, they have the leeway to make these points is because it's also Biden and Pelosi who happen to be correct on this issue. And so it's a lot easier when the milk toast corporate Democrats are with them. They feel like they can make this argument. But at the end of the day, they're correct. They're correct. So the takeaway is hold the line more. Use the Tea Party tactics more. Be aggressive more. Drive a hard bargain more. Because then, as the old saying goes, and I'm going to butcher it, but this is in the ballpark of what it is, if you shoot for the stars, you might reach the moon. If you just shoot for the moon, you probably won't get anywhere. So keep shooting for the stars. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with this moving forward. Uh, I had an interesting conversation uh, about this the other day with a journalist. I don't know if, if he wants me to mention his name, so I won't. But, um, you know, there's a school of thought out there that Cinnamon Mansion would even vote for the $3.5 trillion bill. Um, if the line is held enough. I don't agree with that. I don't think that they actually would vote for the $3.5 trillion bill because I think all they want is that smaller semi-corporate standard infrastructure bill, the roughly $1 trillion bill. So I don't don't think they would actually support the $3.5 trillion, but because progressives are driving such a hard bargain, you might be able to get a deal that's about $2 trillion. Now, I told you guys from day one when we were following this and when the bill was unveiled, I knew the $3.5 trillion wasn't going to make it all the way through the reconciliation process unscathed. That's not the way it works. When you go to reconciliation, you have to reconcile and figure out what stays in and what doesn't. But I will say this. We're in a decent position because as long as the bill doesn't have means testing um, and as long as they don't strip too many uh, programs from it, then we're in a position where the left can and should support it. And obviously, Bernie's word will be huge on this. If Bernie looks at a final deal and says, I'm giving it my blessing, then the left will vote for it. If not, then they won't. But, um, yeah, if you can get a $2 trillion or $2.5 trillion bill, you could just shorten the window of some of these programs. They're, if they're funded for 10 years, say, hey, instead of funding universal pre-K for 10, let's fund it for five, but let's not means test it. Well, that's still a good idea because after five years, it's not like people are going to want to give that up, sort of like with Medicare and Medicaid. Once you, once you gave it to people, it was impossible to take it back because if you did, it's political suicide. So it's a similar thing here. If you just shorten the window, you know, it could still be effective. So uh, that's what I got my eye on for. What are the details of a final bill? Obviously, if there's no climate stuff in there, no deal. If there's means testing, there's no deal. If they strip out some of what I view are redline programs, no deal. But if you meet those basics and it's $2 trillion or more, then I would get on board. So I don't know. We'll see. But randomly, credit to the view for getting something wildly correct. Next. So we just discussed how The View turned on Kirsten Cinema. Amazing. Well, now you're not going to believe this. There are some segments on CNN and MSNBC that have also turned on Mansion and Cinema. Never thought I'd see the day. Now, you know what? I'll get after the clip, I'll get to the reasons why I think they have the leeway to do this. But first, let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. Jason, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. (laughs) Well, I think people in D.C. are surprised that Biden gets along better with his friends on the progressive side. Uh, And the fact that he seems to have thrown in with the progressives in the House who said, look, 
we're not voting for this infrastructure bill, which moderates like, unless both these things are linked together. It's actually good strategy. And it's because Joe Biden, just like Bernie Sanders and the rest of these long-term senators and negotiators understand, you can't trust Chris and Cinema. You can't trust Joe Manchin. And if they get what they want, if they get the, the road infrastructure bill done now, there is no guarantee that they won't waffle and, and, and prevaricate and do everything else they can to not vote for the larger soft infrastructure bill. So I actually think Joe Biden is making a very smart decision right now. This is the future of the party. It, it is his entire agenda. There's no reason to split it up this early. <laughs> Katrina? The uh, progressives are the pragmatists, and they're supporting Biden's agenda. The conservatives, the conservative Democrats, are obstructing. And in fact, this isn't really the progressive agenda. They wanted a bolder Green New Deal and Medicare for all. But this, it polls, it's very popular, all right? And I think that is often misunderstood. I mean, I think you have a fight here between the progressive pragmatists. I mean, Pramila Jayapal is way smart progressive, maybe the next speaker. And I think she understands that you have to move away and refocus on that top line, which she was doing on the show the other day. And really talk about what's in this bill. It's going to help Democrats win in 2022 if you can improve the concrete conditions of people's lives. The, how the progressive wing is advancing popular policies while the conservative wing is willing to risk blowing up the president's agenda. And you describe it as Biden versus a Rip Van Winkle caucus. You say Democrats, Democratic moderates need to wake up. Talk to me about that, Paul. Yeah, I mean, there's still a group, uh, moderates, I hate that term. I mean, basically, if there's a good term for it, it's actually it's the corporate wing of the party, the, the ones who are listening to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce instead of, uh, instead of the public. Uh, but the, uh, they, they're acting as if it's still the 1990s when you could make deals with Republicans, when we were just not at all in this kind of situation. But they're also acting as if um, they kind of thing that people believed in the 1990s. Low taxes lead to higher growth. Uh, um, you know, government is bad. The era of big government is over. We're still relevant. And at this point, you know, what the progressives are asking for, even the full $3.5 trillion, is not a huge thing. It's 1.2% it's of GDP over the next decade. It's a, it's a medium-sized initiative of stuff that has lots of good economic analysis saying that it's actually going to be highly productive. So saying that you know, we need to scale this back, that we need to kind of think that it's 1993 again, is, or 1999 again, that's a really, you know, where, where have these people been for the past 20 years? Astounded. Definitely surprised. Never did I think I'd see the term corporate Democrat uttered on CNN. I don't know if anybody's ever said that on CNN before. I mean, that's, that's absolutely incredible. So um, in the MSNBC clip, um, Vanden Heuvel, who's wonderful, by the way, says, progressives are the pragmatists. Correct. Correct. They are the true moderates. They are the true centrists. If you look at public opinion polls, all these provisions are popular. So they are right smack dab in the center of mainstream American opinion. That's a centrist. Um, then you have uh, Paul Krugman there saying they aren't moderates. It's the corporate wing of the party. Accurate. It's not the 1990s anymore. 
you know, he's saying you can't make deals with these Republicans. They have no interest in any of it. They're complete obstructionists. They won't even raise the debt ceiling, which would totally destroy the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. You think they're going to agree to anything like this? Uh, the reason why they even agreed to the slimmed-down traditional infrastructure bill is because they thought that was the best way to kill the reconciliation bill, or else they wouldn't have even agreed to that. Um, he, says, he says it's not the 1990s anymore. I do want to correct him on that. It's not like in the 1990s you could have done deals with the Republicans either. Look at Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich was as extreme as it gets, and he rose to prominence in the 1990s. Rush Limbaugh was all on the radio airways in the 1990s, and teaching the right to be completely obstructionist and absolute extremists. So you couldn't even really do it back then. But still, I take his point. I understand what he's saying. Um, the other argument being made here is this is already the compromise. So Bernie wanted $10 trillion, Then we were down to $6 trillion. Now it's $3.5 trillion. And it's going to be whittled down even more from this. So, and what you see is people who might genuinely consider themselves, you know, not on the left, let's say, they look at this and say, well, yeah, that actually is sort of a compromise, isn't it? Because if it's, what, $350 billion per year over 10 years, that's half the military budget. This is not wild. This is not extreme. If anything, you should flip those numbers. Maybe spend the 350 on the military and spend the 800 on uh, these programs because people would be a hell of a lot better off if you did that. He says it's 1.2% of GDP over the next decade. It's not much, man. It's not much. It doesn't even catch us up to the rest of the you know, social democratic countries in the world. We'd still lag way behind and still have way more of a laissez-faire free market system than they do. So that gets to the big question. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? How can they take this position when we've never seen them argue stuff like this before? I think the answer is actually very simple. Um, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi happen to be on the correct side of this issue. And so Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi are on the correct side. That, that's the wink and the nod and the go-ahead to MSNBC and CNN. MSNBC is usually corporate Democrat central, where all they do is defend the corporate Democrats. Um, but in this instance, you have some corporate Democrats on the right side, and you have genuine right-wing Democrats who are Republicans. They're blocking the whole thing. So now the dynamic in these networks is, let's defend effectively the corporate Democrats against the right-wing Democrats. And they also probably have a sense, because this isn't that hard to see, Democrats could get wiped out either way. Even if they pass this legislation, Democrats will probably lose the midterms because, because of all the gerrymandering and the lack of a voting rights bill, even if Democrats win by five points, they could still lose seats. So people probably have a sense that Democrats are screwed in the midterms anyway, and this is the only chance, and albeit a slim chance, to hold their own in the election. So if you don't pass this, I mean, it could be a historic wipeout. It could be like the 2010 Tea Party wave, if not worse. So they probably have a sense of that as well, that sense of urgency over it's do or die. So uh, that probably explains why they took the positions that they took. But listen, what they're saying is correct. And you understand, Dr. Jason Johnson, the first guy who was talking there on MSNBC, he's nobody's lefty. He was horrendous to Bernie Sanders. He said terrible things about Brianna Joy Gray. And, you know, he's not good. But he's even snapped into a position that's a hell of a lot more reasonable and, um, again, I think that's largely because Biden and Pelosi are on the, on the correct side of this. So color me surprised that you have uh, CNN and MSNBC actually covering this relatively fairly. And I think the most important point, guys, is with a lot of the coverage, even after the Kirsten Cinema bathroom incident, I thought people would go full, uh, you know, decorum humping and civility humping. 
And that hasn't happened. What's happened is that bathroom incident has actually made people look at, well, why are people so mad at Kirsten Cinema? And they walk away going, oh, she hasn't had a town hall in three years. She doesn't answer constituent calls. She's doing a tour with uh, corporate interests right this second, raising $5,800 a pop from lobbyists from the industry that's lined up against this bill. What, what do you want people to do? So people are actually looking into it and going, she won't give a top-line number. She won't say which program she wants cut. She's obstructing the whole goddamn thing. What are people supposed to do? Well, consider me shocked. Consider me shocked. But there you have it. Maybe the first time ever CNN and MSNBC do at least a half-decent job. All right, here we go. More cinema bathroom talk. Joe Biden was asked about Kirsten Cinema's bathroom incident. She was teaching at ASU, and some protesters uh, basically started, uh, you know, pestering her, and then she went into the bathroom, and they followed her into the bathroom, and um, there's been a lot of dialogue over this. So here's Biden's response when he's asked about this. Mr. President, uh, you're talking about how you have 48 Democratic votes right now. The other two uh, have been pressured over the weekend by activists. Joe Manchin had people on kayaks show up to his boat. PLS, Senator Senator Lachlan was chased into a restroom. Do you think that those tactics are crossing the line? I don't think they're appropriate tactics. It happens to everybody. From <laughs> the only people it doesn't happen to are people who have Secret Service standing around them. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's a part of the process. So he does the obligatory, well, don't do it, it's inappropriate, but then he goes, but it happens all the time, and it's part of the process. What are you going to do? Damn, son, that was thugged out. That was gangster. So listen, I mean, I see there's a, a giant argument about this happening online, and I think the argument is incredibly stupid. So one thing people are trying to do is hypocrisy burn. They're trying to say, well, you wouldn't be okay with somebody following your mom or your sister or your girlfriend in the bathroom. My mom, my sister, and my girlfriend didn't take $750,000 from Big Pharma and then kill lower drug prices. My mom, my sister, and my girlfriend don't have blood on their hands. Kirsten Cinema does. And they, of course, do the flip it situation where they say, well, if a right winger followed AOC into the bathroom, you guys wouldn't be okay with that. Well, if the right winger is following AOC into the bathroom to say, you know, you need to support more war or you should support a Wall Street bailout or some other dumbass right-wing position, I'd be like, yeah, that's stupid. Don't do that. That's dumb. The things you're arguing for are pathetic and they're wrong. So the substance of the protest matters. It's obviously different if you follow somebody into a bathroom to say, go to war, versus if you follow somebody into the bathroom to say, hey, George W. Bush, you're a war criminal. Then I'd be like, okay. I mean, listen, it's not hypocrisy to support some protests for things that you like and not others for things that you don't like. That's not hypocrisy. It's like, oh, you're in favor of that protest? Well, why aren't you in favor of all protests? I am very intelligent. No. Now, listen, don't get it twisted. I wouldn't arrest anybody for following somebody into the bathroom as long as nobody's, you know, punched in the face, nobody's assaulted, no, you know, there's no physical contact. They obviously didn't record her while she was pissing or shitting, that is illegal and should be illegal. You know, it, so whether it's a right-wing protest or a left-wing protest and they use this tactic, it's not something you should lock anybody up for. 
Uh, but on the substance of the protest, that absolutely matters. Why are people pretending like that doesn't matter? That definitely matters. And, and in the grand scheme of things, here's the biggest issue with this. All reasonable people agree you shouldn't do violence for political ends. So no violence, violence, no hurting anybody, no uh, assault, no murder. That's called terrorism if you do that. We all agree that's the case. Then one layer removed from that is property destruction. Well, maybe not everybody agrees that property destruction is wrong for political ends, but most fair-minded people would say, yeah, don't destroy property to try to get some political ends. That's like a lower level of terrorism, violence for some sort of political outcome. So you can't do violence, violence. You can't do property violence, property destruction. Uh, Well, then one layer removed from that is what? Make politicians really uncomfortable. Confront them directly. Shame them. Make them feel the impact of what they're doing in the world. So protests, sit-ins, various ways to disrupt their day in a totally legal manner, but yes, in a way that doesn't fit with decorum and civility. If you're saying we can't even do that, we can't do anything. Your effective argument, whether or not you realize it, is just sit there and take it. So Kirsten Cinema hasn't held a town hall in three years. She doesn't answer any constituent phone calls. She's currently on a tour of corporate America to raise $5,800 a pop from the industry lined up against this bill, and we're supposed to sit there and take it? Well, I guess the protesters who chased her into the bathroom should have donated over $5,000 to her, and maybe then they could get a meeting. So don't, it's just, it's really dumb. Now, I have no doubt that Joe Biden would be a hypocrite on this. Like, if he was chased into a bathroom and somebody called him a war criminal for supporting the Iraq war, he'd be outraged, you know, or... chase him into the bathroom because he supported the Patriot Act or chase him into the bathroom because he supported the crime bill or whatever. He's, done, he's had a million terrible votes. He would, he would be outraged and he would be a hypocrite and I would be arguing against him on that front. But on this one, he does the obligatory, don't do it, it's inappropriate, but he also says, hey. Effectively, his point is like, you don't want to get chased in the bathroom? Support the fucking bill. Hey, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, I have an easy way. Joe, You want nobody to come up to your fucking yacht ever again telling you to do your job? Here's the solution. Do your job. Represent your constituents. That's the solution. That's the solution. I guarantee you nobody's going to bother you on your fucking yacht if you vote for the bill that has over a 60% approval rating. Uh, You know, he always, oh, I'm a West Virginia Democrat. That's him trying to say, so I'm right of the other Democrats. But if you look at the polling numbers on economic issues in West Virginia, they're solidly left. On social issues, they might be more right-wing. They might be pro-gun. They might be uh, anti-abortion. But when it comes to, like, $15 minimum wage, West Virginia wants that. He opposed that. So that's not a dodge that works. If you want to represent West Virginians and you want to represent Americans, you want to represent the American people, your constituents, do your job. Kirsten Sinema, you don't want to be chased in the bathroom? Support the fucking bill, and you won't get chased in the bathroom. That's the solution. But you don't want to hear that solution because you also want to be corrupt. You also want to be a corporatist. You want to not do your job. You want to get paid. And want everybody to sit down, shut up, and take it. No. No deal. So there you have it. The tactic of what they did is borderline. But the substance of the protest matters. And when they're trying to literally save lives, I can overlook the civility and decorum breach. And apparently, even though he gave the obligatory, it's not appropriate, don't do it, Joe Biden thinks the same. Okay, next.
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went on Mehdi Hassan's show, and um, she was asked about her present vote for extra funding for Israel's Iron Dome. Take a look at her response. It's worth doing present, because it didn't really satisfy anyone. The supporters of Israel are mad at you for not voting for it. Critics of Israel are mad at you for not voting against it. Do you regret that? You know, I, it is something that I weigh because there's, a, there's always the macro and then there's the micro. And in the macro of narrative, of politics, of, of national impact, um, you know, it, it, I probably should have just gone with, with my value. But in the macro, which would be to vote no, but in the micro, I do believe that this created um, a window in our community to be able to bring all folks to the table because my great fear is that we are going to import the same sort of um, contention around this issue and we can have a progressive movement that defends Palestinian human rights that is Muslim, Christian, Jewish. Um, but I, so in the micro, I believe that it created a, a window of opportunity for us in, in the Bronx. Um, but in the macro, it was very difficult, yes. What? That makes absolutely no sense. I mean, that, that sounds like a child trying to do sophistry and rationalize and explain away why they took the cookie from the jar when their mom and dad told them not to. We got the macro and we got the micro and we got a window of opportunity to bring everybody together to the table. That doesn't mean anything. Look, uh, she said it at the beginning. Yeah, I, I should have voted. Uh, maybe I could have voted my value, which is to vote no. Yeah. Yeah, you could have just done that. You want to know why? Because Israel's Iron Dome is already fully funded. They also have universal health care. We don't even have universal health care in this country. And we're going to send our tax money to them so they can have extra funding for their Iron Dome. By the way, where's the Iron Dome funding for Palestinians? Is there Iron Dome for Gaza? Gaza gets bombarded all the time from Israeli aggression, Israeli government terrorism. It, listen, I'll make a deal with you. You, wanna, you want Israel's uh, Iron Dome to be there? Okay, uh, as long as we have Iron Dome for Palestinians as well. Deal. This way everybody gets to be defensive. I'll shake on it right now. Ready? No, you don't want to do that. Because really the U.S. government supports Israeli aggression. And so for her to vote yes on that, it's already fully funded. And you shouldn't even vote for that in the first place. Now you want to do the extra funding. And you voted present. When you know the right thing was to vote no. But you voted yes. Why? Well, the answer is very simple. I think her office got flooded with calls saying, vote for the Iron Dome or you're an anti-Semite. Effectively that. And there are plenty of Jewish folks and uh, Israeli state supporters in her district, and I think her office was flooded with phone calls saying, you better vote for the funding for this or else, or you're gonna, we're going to kick you out of office, we're going to organize against you, and all that stuff. And so she heard a lot of anger directed at her from a particular position, and that cowered her in a corner because she knows, because she's part of the squad, she's friends with Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, you know, I'm sure they explained to her the situation. I'm sure that, you know, she knows why it's the right thing to vote no. So she was caught between her friends telling her the right thing to do, her own conscience telling her the right thing to do, and a bunch of angry supporters who are throwing the kitchen sink at her. And, uh, you know, she's probably also thinking about re-election. Oh, maybe this vote will affect my re-election because there is a strong organizational impact against me if I vote the right way on this thing. Jamal Bowman, by the way, voted the same way. There's a lot of uh, Israeli state supporters in his district as well. And I'm sorry, he didn't vote the same way. He didn't vote president. He voted for the Iron Dome funding. 
And by the way, there were some subtweets going on, too, of Ilhan Omar subtweeting uh, AOC, like, you know, giving props to Rashida Tlaib for voting the right way and basically a jab at AOC, like, you're pathetic for doing what you did. And I think Ilhan Omar's correct to, to do that. So uh, I think that's what happened. I think she was, like, pushed into a corner by angry constituents. But here's the thing, guys. You can get a bunch of angry phone, uh, phone calls from somebody over uh, our funding and support of Saudi Arabia. Now, granted, it's a much smaller constituency, pro-Saudi constituency in the U.S., but if, you know, if there's 20 people I can get to call you angrily, maybe paid stooges of the military-industrial complex, to say, you know, how dare you uh, vote against our ally, our close ally in the region, Saudi Arabia, is that enough for you to say, oh, you know what, you're right, let's continue to give Saudi Arabia weapons or funding no, you look at the overall facts and you'd say Saudi Arabia beheads people in the public square for sorcery and witchcraft and apostasy and drug smuggling. They're doing a genocide in Yemen. This is not somebody we should be funding or giving weapons to. So you'd vote no on that. But with Israel, it's different? No, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. She did a classic politician thing. She felt like she was in a corner, and so she took the coward's way out. And she herself said about Tulsi's uh, vote on impeachment that it was the coward's way out to vote president, that basically nobody should vote president about anything. So it was incoherent babble there because she doesn't have a good answer. All she has is incoherent babble. Uh, I was, I wanted in the macro, I wanted to vote my way, but in the micro, it's a window of opportunity to bring everybody together to the table. Who the fuck's going to get sit down at the table together over this? Who's going to sit down? What you think you got? Uh, APAC is going to sit across from people who are, you know, pushing for Palestinian human rights and hear them out? That's not going to happen. And this is the other problem with her. Is she? She acts like everybody's a good actor. You know, I noticed this when, when Ilhan Omar was getting viciously smeared as an anti-Semite. Viciously smeared. Um, because she said, you know, APAC money influences politicians. Now, if she said that, if she said Saudi money influences politicians. If she said, you know, uh, NRA money influences Republican politicians, everybody would be like, duh. But you say APAC money influences politicians on the Republican side and the Democratic side, and that's anti-Semitic? So Ilhan Omar is being viciously smeared. And what did AOC do? She tried to split the difference and act like, well, we got to hear everybody out. We need to hear everybody's voice, everybody at the table. And these people feel like that's bigotry or xenophobia. And Ilhan didn't mean anything by it, so let's find some sort of compromise or middle ground. AOC, some people are not honest actors. They are smear merchants trying to take down people who are advocating for the correct position. Period. But as long as you cloak some shit in identity, she falls for it. You know, it's the saddest thing I've ever seen. It's the classic, like, just cloak whatever you're doing in some social justice garbage, and she'll be like, oh, I'm right there with you. It's like the tobacco companies now are lobbying against increased cigarette taxes. You know what argument they're making? Well, if you increase cigarette taxes... That's going to lead to more illegal underground sales of cigarettes. We know what happened when that was the case. Look at what happened with Eric Garner. He was selling Lucy's. He was selling uh, cigarettes illegally. And there was a confrontation between the officer and Eric Garner, and Eric Garner was killed. So don't raise taxes on cigarettes because black lives matter, and we are anti-racist. Now, my guess is she would look at that and say, well, that's fucking bullshit. Right, a lot of these identity arguments that are out there are bullshit. They are weaponized against the left to get you to not do the right thing. And in this case, it worked. Congratulations, AOC. Definitely a coward's vote. Definitely pathetic. 
and you have no answer because you have no answer. This is incoherent babble because it's incoherent babble. So maybe you should have done the right thing. And by the way, polling in the entire country, and I think polling in her, even her district, the majority of people would say, yeah, don't do this. We don't have health care here. We got a million things we need to fix. And we're going to send more money to Israel for Iron Dome when Iron Dome is already fully funded? It's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. There you have it. Credit to Mehdi Hassan for asking a tough question and terrible answer from AOC. All right, next. After this one, we will take a break. So everybody needs to take a look at this story. It, um, this won't get much play, even though it should be huge. The Intercept is reporting that Merck, the pharma company, sells federally financed COVID pill to U.S. for 40 times what it costs to make. The COVID-19 treatment, Molnupiravir, was developed using funds, funding from the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Defense. So let me give you some of the specifics on this. So the pill itself costs $17.74 to make. Um, Merck is charging the U.S. government $712 for the same amount of medicine, 40 times the price. Now, the crazy thing about this story is this isn't limited to just this new COVID-19 pill, which is effective, by the way. It's not limited to this. This happens with virtually all the drugs. Almost every new drug is funded with U.S. taxpayer money. And then pharma companies swoop in, buy up the rights, and price gouge you on the back end. So you fund it twice. You fund it with your tax money up front, and on the back end you get price gouging. You have to pay more out of pocket, and they run out the back door with all the money. It's a scam. And the reason they get away with the scam is because they bought the government. They bought the politicians. So the politicians are in on the scam because they're getting their kickbacks. That's the way this works. It's a criminal mafia Big pharma and health insurance companies, by the way, but that's another conversation for another day. It, it's just a giant mafia. It's a scam. This is one area where the price, uh, or excuse me, uh, capitalism and the profit motive is just a terrible incentive, which is inevitably going to lead to this. So they say in the first 29 days of the trial of this drug, there were no deaths reported among the 385 patients who received the drug, while eight of the people who received a placebo died. So that's pretty solid evidence that this is effective. Um, now, it's not just Merck that's in on this. It's also Ridgeback Biotherapeutics, which is a small Miami-based company. They licensed the medicine from Emory University in 2020, and two months later sold the worldwide rights to the drug maker Merck. So in other words, bio, Ridgeback Biotherapeutics um, was involved at the front end with the making of this with government help. And then they sold the rights to Merck, uh, which is, of course, a bigger pharma company. And we don't know how much they sold it for, by the way. So this was, it was developed using government funds. In fact, I'll give you the specifics. The Defense Threat Reduction Agency, a division of the Department of Defense, provided more than $10 million of funding in 2013 and 2015 to Emory University. Now, you might be saying, well, hold on. How the hell could you do it in 2013 and 2015? When that was way before COVID-19. How could they have done the funding? Well, it's very simple. They, um, they were researching this for a different virus. 
and then coming to find out it's an antiviral that is effective against COVID-19. So uh, it's one of those things. And it's not just the $10 million from um, the Department of Defense that was used for this. Also, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is part of the National Institute of Health, they provided Emory with more than $19 million in additional grants to do this funding, to do this research. So in total, U.S. taxpayers paid $29 million. But guess what? Merck and Ridgeback are the only ones who are going to reap the profits from this. According to courts, it's going to bring in as much as $7 billion in profit by the end of this year. $7 billion in profit. You funded it, and on the back end, they're going to price gouge you. 17, uh, about $18 a pill, and you're going to, it's over $700 is what you're going to be charged. Tell me why this should be allowed. Tell me why it should be allowed. All the standard arguments here for laissez-faire, free market capitalism, they all fall apart. It was developed with government money, with taxpayer money. It is already socialized in that respect. So now you allow capitalists and profiteers to swoop in, buy up the rights, and sell it back to the American people for 40 times the price? There's no argument there for economic efficiency or it has to work because of the research and development of the capitalist sector. The research and development was not from the capitalist sector. So what are we doing here? We're just allowing mafia bosses to do mafia shit. We're just allowing pirates to do pirate shit. That's what this is. And nobody's going to call it out. Credit to The Intercept for this article. You'll see some new media segments on this. You'll see nobody in mainstream media talk about this. Nobody. Nobody. And it's a scandal. It is an absolute scandal. This should not be allowed. You know, this is, if we funded it up front, we should have a free on the back end or at cost. That's it. And listen, guys, I, you know, I hate to say this, but this is true. You wonder why people are so skeptical of every single institution in this country. This is why. Because people get little bits and pieces of how everything's a colossal scam. So you think this doesn't lead to, like, vaccine hesitancy, for example? Because people look at this and they go, well, if, they'll, if they're willing to do this, maybe they are willing to just give us a fake vaccine that doesn't work and pretend like it works so they can run out the back door with billions of dollars of taxpayer money. This undermines the credibility of the entire system, you jackasses. It's like the Iraq war. Listen, I'm the perfect age to have my political awakening during the Iraq war, during the Great Recession. That destroyed everybody's faith and confidence in all of our institutions because it should It should. We were lied into an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, and $14 trillion later, we're still in Iraq. Not in Afghanistan now, but in Iraq. But with all those wars, $14 trillion, what do we have to show for it? Absolutely nothing. It was an imperialist crusade. The the tax cuts for the wealthy and deregulation led to a market crash. There's been no correction for that. If anything, we went right back to those policies. That's what the Trump tax cuts were in 2017 and the destroying of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and not bringing back Glass-Steagall. People aren't total idiots. They see how the system has screwed them a thousand ways to Sunday, and so sometimes a healthy skepticism becomes cynicism. And you know what feeds cynicism? Stories like this. Stories like this Jacobin was getting piled on the other day for pointing out that there's a reason why the ivermectin story took off, why so many people believed ivermectin was the cure and the answer to COVID-19. There's a reason why. Because you have support and trust in institutions absolutely exploding, so people are looking for alternative answers, 
even if those alternative answers ultimately end up to be from charlatans and conmen and frauds and people who are just as bad, if not worse, than the original institution. Now, they were dogpiled for pointing that out, but it's accurate. It's accurate. Now, ultimately, people have agency, so they should stop and research and do the right thing. I'm not totally taking it away from the individuals here who make their decisions, but you cannot deny that when there's been such an institutional collapse that it is reasonable and rational for everybody to pause and reflect every step of the way and say, what am I really doing here? Who can I really trust here? Because this is just a scam. There's no other word for it. This is just a scam with this new COVID pill, the way that they're, they're doing it. It, it works. I believe that because the study showed that it works, and I believe the vaccine works, of course. Um, but this, when you do stuff like this, instead of people having just a healthy skepticism, some people become flat-out cynical. And they think the entire system is bullshit. And they're partly correct. So do this at your own. Don't act like you weren't warned. I'll just say that. Don't act like you weren't warned. Because we, think, we always think we hit rock bottom on this front, but it could always get worse. It could always get worse. You could have a total societal collapse. So this is a scandal. You won't hear about it anywhere else. And that's a damn shame. All right, guys, let me take a break. When we come back, got plenty more stuff. Stay right there, y'all.
We are back, bitch. We are back, y'all. Haven't seen the sun in three days in New York, and I'm losing my mind. You know, I've been uh, I've been on a crusade on Twitter, pointing out the correct opinion that fall can go fuck itself. Yeah, you heard me. I did not stutter. Autumn can go fuck itself. Um, terrible month. Terrible. I don't know why any of you like it. I mean, I get that there are a lot of people that like it, but that just means there's a lot of people who are objectively wrong. Uh, let's see. When it's 65 degrees outside in the fall, it feels like it's 40. Because you just came off the summer where it was like 85 very often. So 65 feels like it's 40, and you're freezing your balls off. You never know when to, to, to switch it from like the AC to the heat or just have like a transition period where it's off. You always fuck it up some nights and you wake up freezing or whatever. Uh, pumpkin stuff is disgusting. Corin pointed that out on Twitter the other day. There's a reason why he's my best friend. That's totally correct. I mean, I get, okay, I get, ooh, the leaves change color. Wow, yeah, I saw that a zillion times in my lives. If I want to see it again, I could Google image search it from a tropical paradise, which would be a much better place to be. Uh, if you live in, like, Florida or you live in like Arizona, and you want to say, I love fall, by all means, go right ahead. Because there, you know, you're going from like, feels like 95 degrees to beautiful, like 80 degrees or whatever. I get that, because, you know, it's the extreme heat to like normal comfy heat. Got it. But if you're anywhere else, or if you're in the Northeast like I am, it's like, oh yeah, isn't fall wonderful? I haven't seen the sun in two and a half weeks. I love this seasonal depression I get. Fuck out of here. I don't know how any of you like fall. Shame on all of you who do. Yeah, I said it. Go ahead. Ratio me, bitch. I don't care. I hope I get 100% dislikes on this video, because I'm right. Let's talk about a Missouri man. This is, this is heartbreaking. This is truly a heartbreaking story. So uh, got this news yesterday, and this is truly, truly heartbreaking. Uh, a Missouri man has been executed for murder despite pleas for clemency by advocates who say he had an intellectual disability. Ernest Johnson received a lethal injection on Tuesday after the U.S. Supreme Court refused to consider a stay of execution earlier in the day. The 61-year-old's pleas for leniency had received support from Pope Francis and two members of Congress, Johnson killed three convenience store workers in a 1994 robbery. Attorneys for Johnson argued he was ineligible for the death penalty because multiple IQ tests have shown he has the mental capacity of a child and still reads at a third grade level. Johnson, a black man, was born with fetal alcohol syndrome after his mother drank heavily during her pregnancy. So, um, yeah, again, that's heartbreaking. Let me show you... This was, his, this was his last words, official, final statement. DOC has made available a last statement from Ernest Johnson dated yesterday. I am sorry, sorry spelled incorrectly, and have remorse for what I do. I want to say that I love my family and friends. I am thankful of all that my lawyer, lawyer spelled incorrectly, has done for me. They made me feel love as if I was family to them. I love them all. For all the people that has prayed for me, I thank them from the bottom of my 
think that's supposed to say heart, but it doesn't. I love the Lord with all my heart and soul. If I'm executed, I know, no spelled incorrectly, where I am going to heaven. Because I ask him to forgive me, God, everyone. And with respect, with spelled incorrectly, Ernest L. Johnson. So there was a Supreme Court case in 2002. And in that case, they said, it violates the Eighth Amendment protection from cruel and unusual punishment to execute people who have intellectual problems. So if you have very low IQ, if you have... I don't know if it would go as far as to say if you're on the spectrum autism-wise or if you have to be fully autistic or if you know, maybe somebody with Down syndrome or something like that. Uh, you are... They're not allowed to put you to death if you committed a crime and you don't really fully understand the consequences of your actions. And it's, you know, it's based on the theory that you don't really know what you're doing. So there, there's a, an element of you know, choice that is granted to people who have full mental capacity. They look at you like, you could have not committed the murder or whatever. But the more somebody struggles mentally, whether it's IQ-wise or mental illness or whatever it is, at some point, everybody agrees, well, that makes no sense. So for example, if somebody is a paranoid schizophrenic and they are literally hallucinating and they're just not connected to reality at all and they think that somebody who's trying to help them is a demon and they're fighting off the demon and they stab the demon to death or something like that. Well, we all realize that's a tragedy and that's a crime and that's terrible and some action has to be taken, but should that person be put to death? Well, if they really didn't know what they're doing, they don't have agency. So to say, kill them, you would have to say the system is acting just as barbaric, if not much more barbaric, in reaction to the crime. See, that's, and that's the fundamental contradiction of the death penalty is like, we're going to prove murdering is wrong by murdering you. What? What? That's classic, like, do as I say, not as I do stuff, which is the hallmark of bad dads. <laughs> it, I think the fact that the Supreme Court didn't intervene here is almost overturns that 2002 Supreme Court ruling. Now, their counterargument as well, there was planning that was involved in his killing of the three uh, convenience store workers during the robbery. I don't know, that strikes me as kind of up in the air because it could have been planned to do the robbery, of course, but if a robbery goes wrong, then, you know, maybe he didn't have the intent to do it, but he did it. Uh, I'm not saying, I'm obviously not saying it's a good thing. I'm obviously not saying there shouldn't be consequences. But the idea of the death penalty, I mean, if you're saying even somebody with the intellectual capacity of a grade schooler can be put to death for this, then you're saying there are no limits. So why not execute the paranoid schizophrenic person? Why not go further than that and execute people for much lower level crimes? And then, of course, you have the problem. The death penalty, the issue with the death penalty overall, in my mind, is 4% of the time, according to a study from years back, we kill the wrong people. So in other words, you go through the whole trial process and still at the end of it all, 4% of the time, people get executed when they didn't even commit the crime. So if you're okay with the death penalty, you're saying, I'm okay with the state murdering people, innocent people, 4% of the time. So murder is okay sometimes. 
if it's done with a process that found the wrong conclusion. I'm not okay with that, and I hope you're not okay with that either. So, you know, and I've often said, are there instances where I see a heinous crime and I think the person does have full mental capabilities and I, I don't feel bad for them if they get found guilty and sentenced to death? Yeah, and maybe that makes me a bad leftist or whatever. Uh, but this is not one of those instances. This is one where if you believe in the Constitution and you believe in the Eighth Amendment protection from cruel and unusual punishment, I think this is an open and shut case. You could have all the sympathy in the world for the victims of the crime, without a doubt. But you still would have to say, life in prison or life in some sort of uh, facility that can help with his mental disability. But the thing is, like, beyond that, he also did, according to all the reports, he's shown complete remorse through all the time. So if the idea is rehabilitation from crimes, mission accomplished. The guy's rehabilitated. He feels terrible for what he did. He knows it was wrong. Now, some people could fake that, and it's like, okay, well, what do you do in that situation? These are all complex things. But what's not complex is this punishment doesn't really fit the crime, given all the facts of the situation and given our Constitution and the Eighth Amendment. So executing a mentally disabled, effectively, person, that's not okay, man. And we are one of the few remaining countries that does the death penalty. Not just few remaining developed countries, few remaining countries that still does the death penalty. So it is, it is heartbreaking. Oh, final point is, this one really gets me. So uh, the stay of execution wasn't granted, even though the Pope said granted, Congress people said granted, a former governor said granted. Um, so he said, for the love of God, please, can I have the firing squad instead of lethal injection? The response was a swift no. So he had succumbed to his, you know, hey, this is my fate. This is what's going to happen. Can you at least do something that I won't feel probably any pain at all if you're in front of the firing squad? I mean, one bullet to the brain and you're, you're donezo. You're out of there and there's probably no pain. Um, they said, no, we're going to do lethal injection. Now, there are reports that he was, had labored breathing for a little bit before he finally died. And this is the problem with the lethal injection. is It's set up to make us feel better about what we're doing because it seems like medical and serious. But a lot of evidence suggests that, especially with the new uh, lethal injection cocktails, there's been a lot of horror stories, people not dying for 30 minutes, people foaming at the mouth, people seizing. So in other words, people feeling extreme torture and pain before they die. And again, he had labor breathing before he died. So on the way out, for good measure, it wasn't just, we're going to kill you. We're going to torture you too. Good riddance. You always want to try to avoid, you don't want to become the demon that you're trying to avoid. You don't want to become the evil actor that you're trying to prevent. And oftentimes people do that. In order to prevent these terrible things, I will do the terrible things. That's not smart. And that's not just. That's actually really, really stupid. And this is a classic example of that right here. And it's heartbreaking. All right, next. So Crystal Ball interviewed Andrew Yang, discussing his new forward book and his new third party called The Forward Party. Um, I found this interesting because my original perception of it was it's just a third party. 
Turns out it's a little different from that, maybe, although that he does appear to be slightly contradicting himself here. Take a look, and then we'll discuss. So if someone is for these six pillars, and they're running as a Democrat in a primary uh, or running as a Republican in a primary, let's get behind them. Uh, you know, like, you don't need to run as forward party. We're going to be a group that just supports people who are for these principles, and simultaneously we will be activating voters to pass these ballot initiatives uh, to try and implement open primaries and ranked choice voting in states around the country. Gotcha. So this sounds a little bit like the um, the DSA model in that they'll back candidates who are running on the Democratic Party line. They also do field candidates who run, you know, outright as DSA candidates, but they've they focus electorally and have some success that way in backing candidates who are running as Democrats but support their shared values. Is that kind of like the, the realm of what you're thinking in? Yes, because, again, we're, we're smart and impact-driven, and in a lot of these locations it is impossible to run as anything other than a Democrat or Republican, so we're going to support people who are aligned uh, regardless of what letters next to their name. Like, this is not working for Democrats, independents, Republicans, it's driving us all mad. Um, and so in the face of that madness, what is a real answer? What is a real solution? And I believe that the real solution is changing the duopoly. The duopoly does not make any sense on its face. There's nothing about two parties in the Constitution. It's holding us back in so many ways. 57% of Americans want a third party. 60% think both sides are out of touch. So if a majority of Americans are at that point, why can we not change it? And it's because we've been told that we cannot change it. <laughs> like like that, that's really the answer to it. So then you have to say, okay, hey, but now let's get together. Can we change it? Well, let, let's do that. Let's start the forward party, inclusive of everyone of every alignment. Don't need to change your party registration. And let's change the incentives that we'll have real hope. This is my best shot at something I can feel great about. So this is really interesting to me, and I'm kind of mixed on it, and I don't know exactly what he means here because I do think there's a little bit of a contradiction, so let, let me run through it. So at the beginning there, he says, listen, with my forward party, you can run as a Democrat or a Republican um, and still be part of the forward party. And so then Crystal accurately points out, okay, so you're doing basically the DSA model. Because what the DSA does is they will endorse candidates, and oftentimes, if not most of the time, all the time? I, I actually don't know, but I think it's just most of the time they run um, Democratic Socialists in the Democratic Party. Like, they'll endorse a Democratic candidate who is a Democratic Socialist. Now, why do they do this? They don't do this because they're corrupt or they're sellouts or whatever. They do it because it's the only way to fucking win. <laughs> like... We have the Green Party. None of them are in Congress. None of them are in the House of Representatives. None of them are in the Senate. None of them ever made it to the White House. I don't Maybe there's a handful, even at the local level around the country. We have the Libertarian Party. None of them are in the House of Representatives. None of them are in the Senate. Uh, none of them have been president. Maybe there's a handful at the, the state and local level. Like, there's just tremendous amounts of evidence that you just can't win that way. So if you want to be serious about gaining power and changing stuff, you're basically forced to do the DSA model, which is we'll endorse you as a democratic socialist, but you're running in the Democratic Party, so you actually have a fucking chance to win. Um, so on the one hand, he says, like, let's do the DSA model because we're practical and we're pragmatic, and that's the only way to do it. And 
the, the comparison I always make for people is um, we have Coke and Pepsi, and, yeah, RC Cola can say we're going to overtake them, but they're not going to fucking overtake them. So, now, we might not like that. You and I might prefer RC Cola. We might prefer the Green Party uh, to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, but doesn't mean it's po- even possible for them to actually overcome them because you have to be realistic and pragmatic and and just evaluate evidence effectively. So on the one hand, he says, I'm not an idiot. Of course I'm going to do the DSA model. But then that last part you saw there was from later on in the interview where he kind of says the opposite. He says, well, we need to break the duopoly. You're going to break the duopoly by running people from within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party? That's not breaking the duopoly. That's the opposite of it. Now, again, the whole break the duopoly thing sounds great in theory. I support it in theory. In reality, I don't think it's fucking possible, and we don't have the time to break the duopoly to actually address the problems that we need to fucking address. So which is it? Is it break the duopoly, 57% of Americans want a third party, so we've got to deliver on the third party? Yeah, 57% of Americans want a third party. I'm included in that. But also, like, almost nobody votes third party. I vote third party because I'm actually, you know, I, I will actually vote for the candidate, whoever I think is the best candidate in each election, because that's how I roll. But I don't do it with fucking rose-colored glasses on where I pretend like when I voted for Jill Stein, yeah, she has a chance to win. What am I, a fucking idiot? Of course I know she doesn't have a chance to win. So he, there is a contradiction there. He's saying let's be practical, let's be pragmatic, let's get people elected in the Democratic Party who are endorsed by the forward party who are for these things I care about deeply. And on the other hand, he's like, no, no, break the duopoly and let's have a third party that's transformative. You don't see that contradiction, Andrew? You don't see that contradiction? So, now, by the way, I will say, even though I'm, I'm being critical at this moment, I will say, if he actually means the first thing, then I don't think this is crazy. I actually like the idea, and I think a lot of people should do a lot more of it. So, uh, let me give you, these are the, the planks. We talked about this before, but I'll give it to you again. His planks are, number one, ranked choice voting in open primaries. So, you need to support ranked choice voting in open primaries to get the endorsement of the forward party. Uh, then he says, number two, fact-based governance. That really doesn't mean anything because everybody thinks they're dealing in facts, even if they're not. Uh, number three, human-centered capitalism. That's sort of, I feel like that's a low bar. If you're going to push for human-centered capitalism, you ain't going to get anywhere near it. <laughs> so, and also, it's just, that's another, seems like almost a contradiction in terms, and Crystal points that out at one point in the, uh, in the interview. Number four, effective in modern government. Again, that doesn't really mean anything, Andrew. Um, because people have different interpretations and perceptions of what that is and what that entails and what policies uh, would be in alignment with that. Number five, UBI. I support that one. Number six, grace and tolerance. Again, I don't really know what that means. It's like very vague and general. So of the six planks, I only really support two. Ranked choice voting and open primaries, which is the first plank, and UBI, which is the fifth plank. So, but if his goal is, let's put aside the stuff that's meaningless and it doesn't really mean anything. Just put that aside for a second here. If Andrew Yang says the forward party is going to endorse candidates who support UBI and uh, ranked choice voting in open primaries, I say, oh, cool. That's great. So then when the forward party endorses somebody, yeah, I would be more likely to take a look at that candidate and be like, oh, so at least I know this person is for ranked choice voting in open primaries and UBI. And that does give them a leg up on other candidates in my mind, because those are policies I support. And that, that would be a flag of, like, here's one you can support. I guess my only point is everybody needs to not lie to themselves that, you know, somebody running as a Democrat with those policy beliefs would have a much better chance to win 
then somebody running in a literal forward party, which was created two and a half seconds ago, has next to zero name recognition and won't get cracked more than 5% in anywhere in the country. So that's my only point. Now, a lot of people don't like when you point that out. I don't fucking care. Because what I'm saying is just a fact. That's just a fact. I don't know how to stress this enough. If you, and, and this is why the other part of what Andrew Yang is doing here, that's actually good. If you want to do the third-party route, you cannot put the cart before the horse. So what I mean by that is you have to first do ranked choice voting and open primaries because that's the only way you can then turn around and say to people, there's no such thing as a, a, a wasted vote. There's no such thing as the spoiler effect. We have ranked choice voting. We have open primaries. You could just vote for whoever you want. And so then you have a list. And maybe, just maybe, when we get to that point, well, then you can vote number one candidate, uh, Green Party candidate, number two, Democrat, number three, this other Democrat, number four, uh, you know, whatever, fill in the blank with whatever various party you might support. So, but what I see is a lot of people in the third party movement, they're not first and foremost pushing for the necessary reform, ranked choice voting and, and open primaries, which is what you absolutely have to do before you go all in on a third party uh, approach. Because guess what? People have been trying this in the modern era for decades, and nobody got fucking anywhere because we don't have ranked choice voting. So what that means is, and we don't have open primaries, so what that means is it is effectively rigged against these parties, and you're just making your life harder by trying to do it without unrigging it first. It's like somebody breaks both your legs and says, run the marathon, and you're like, okay, I'm going to run the marathon. Well, get your fucking legs fixed first and then run the marathon. What are you, dense? You're not going to win running with two broken legs. Duh. So Andrew Yang is correct in this approach. So if you do the ranked choice voting in the open primaries, if we actually get that implemented in places, and he's talking about direct ballot initiatives and things of that nature too, well then yeah, then it's not as much of self-disenfranchisement anymore to be part of a real third party. You see what I'm saying? So um, I'll end on that note because that's the positive note, that he's somebody who's trying this third party approach who at least is not putting the cart before the horse. He's not saying, here's all the amazing policies I'm for, but I'm not going to first push for ranked choice voting in open primaries, which is the only way that I even have a snowball's chance in hell to win. So uh, there you have it. I, I take my position on this forward party was this is silly and ridiculous, and now I have shifted my position to I'm just agnostic on it, namely because it's just a good way to know which candidates support ranked choice voting, open primaries, and UBI, and that's helpful. That's definitely helpful. But the reason I just say I'm agnostic and not supportive is because um, he sort of contradicts himself as to what is really going on here. Is it the DSA approach, which is reasonable, or is it this, you know, I'm just going to try to break the duopoly and get a third party, which has like less than a 1% chance of victory, and I will self-disenfranchise and waste my time? Uh, I mean hope it's the former, and if it is the former, I really have no problem with it, and if anything, it'll be sort of helpful to know who supports these policies, which I also support. Okay, next. Oh, Sean Hannity, he is absolutely hilarious. So he played a song on his Fox News show um, which bashes Joe Biden for the withdrawal from Afghanistan. This is so silly that it 
literally sounds like a, a, a South Park, I was going to say Facebook, I don't know where that came from, a South Park parody song. It's like um, Trey Parker and Matt Stone did this. But he plays this like, this is going viral around the country. Everybody's so outraged by the Afghanistan withdrawal. Watch. It's called Blood on My Hands. Now, with his permission, we took the liberty of putting some video to accompany this song that has now gone viral. It's almost become an anthem around the country. Take a look. the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. My favorite part <laughs> is in the song when he goes, hee-hee. <laughs> that really is, it's like a South Park parody. I can't believe that song is real. That's amazing that that song is real. So he's playing this, and he's thinking, you know, everybody watching is like, ugh. God damn it, we better go back into Afghanistan and defeat the Taliban. Dog, we got roads and bridges that are crumbling over here. We've been there for 20 years. How much longer do you want to be there? We're going to be two more years, five more years, ten more years, 30 more years. You want to be there forever? As if this is like, you know, this is, this is what people are super concerned about, sitting around the kitchen table talking about it. You know, I know we went there and we allied with warlords with child sex slaves, uh, but I'm more outraged by the withdrawal than I am about that. So I guess we got to go back in. Got blood on my hands. <laughs> I love how they try to make it like emotional. If you're watching this, like, uh huh. We should do more U.S. imperialism to fix this. By the way, don't know how long this video is going to be on YouTube because I have no doubt that I'm going to get a, a copyright for this video. Oftentimes, what happens? Sometimes the copyright they just take your shit down, uh, but. Oftentimes what they do is they allow you to keep it up, but they'll jack the revenue for the video. So I don't know if the producer of that song is going to jack the, the revenue or some of the other clips I'm going to show in this segment. I don't know if they're going to jack the revenue, but somebody's going to jack the revenue. And by the way, 
uh, we're really getting hit hard with demonetization lately. So shameless plug here, but if you support the show and if you like this content, do me a favor. The first link in the video description box is uh, our Patreon. Just donate like two bucks a month or five or seven bucks a month or whatever. Uh, if you can't afford it, it's totally okay. But if you can, I'd really appreciate it because we've been getting hit hard lately with demonetization stuff. And also, I'll probably get copyrighted for this and they'll jack the revenue for this video. So um, any help you can give is appreciated. But let me show you. I just said there might be somebody else who wants to jack the, the revenue and copyright this video. Let me show you what this song reminded me of. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Basketball by, um, is it Trey Stone and Matt Parker, or Matt Parker and Trey Stone, the South Park guys. Uh, it's a masterpiece. Basketball is a masterpiece. It's hilarious. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. I've watched it about a thousand times. Uh, that song reminds me of this song from that movie. Reminds me of my childhood. Amazing. Lovely. Um, am I wrong? Do they not sound alike? It's like a parody song. And Hannity is particularly annoying because remember when Trump was president, Trump would go everywhere saying, you know, we really should get out of Afghanistan. Why are we there? It's so stupid. It's so dumb. America first. We should build our own country. Don't worry about their country. What are we doing? It's a waste. And Hannity would be like, yes, daddy, you're so right. Spit in my mouth. I love you. And then Biden actually withdraws from Afghanistan. He's like, oh, this is outrageous. Got blood on my hands. Do, 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 do. Got blood on my hands. Do, 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 do. <laughs> it's like they brought Michael Jackson back from the grave to do that one noise in the song. <laughs> So anyway, uh, Hannity's a hack. That's obvious. Um, I'll leave you with, here is, I mean, all you know this already, but if you happen to be new to uh, this sort of exposing of Fox News hacks, this is how much of a hack Hannity is. I think he's probably the biggest hack on TV, which says a lot. He, um, during the Bush administration, when we learned, because of Glenn Greenwald and Edward Snowden, Laura Poitras, that um, there was illegal, unconstitutional 
uh, spying going on on all Americans. They collect all of our metadata, and they spy on everybody. Wild violation of your Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, under the Bush administration, Hannity was aggressively in favor of these programs to protect us from terrorists. How could you be so soft on terror to be against these things? The exact same program under Obama, he flipped. He's like, oh, this is a wild, wild violation of our rights. This is insane. Same program, two different presidents. Republic, under a Republican, it's awesome. Under a Democrat, this is evil and terrible and wrong. Take a look. We know that you're against the NSA data mining. We know that you're against the NSA surveillance program. So the question is, where does the Democratic Party, what will you do if you're elected to power to make our country safer in the war on terror? Specifically, what, do your, what will your party support? Your party brags about killing the Patriot Act. You don't want the NSA surveillance. You don't want data mining. We have Pat Leahy saying that he doesn't want a, a NSA surveillance program. Nancy Pelosi, the woman who'd love to be speaker. She's against the NSA surveillance program. Yeah, she would mention that. You mentioned the very specific things, the Patriot Act, the NSA surveillance program. The party that's weak on national defense, that doesn't want the Patriot Act, the NSA program, the data mining program. Is it right to say that, that for example, on issues involving national security, be it the NSA surveillance program, the data mining program, the Patriot Act, Guantanamo Bay, that Democrats are weak on issues involving national security when our techniques are working. We've got the NSA program here. We've got the Patriot Act program here. You know, in light of this, how close this was, I, uh, it's staggering to me that we're even debating the use of these techniques in this country even at this time. Big Brother is monitoring your every move, whether it be online or on the telephone. Let's talk about why this story, why is this important to you? Number one, this is America, and as law-abiding American citizens, you have a right to privacy. Number two, these actions by the Obama administration are clear, very clear violation of the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable search and seizure. Number three, the Constitution. It is our rule of law. If we do not respect and honor the Constitution, then anarchy and tyranny will there follow. Credit to Media Matters for putting that together. That really shows everything about Sean Hannity. And um, I reiterate, Blood on My Hands is the funniest non-parody parody song I've ever heard. Okay. So we have some potential good news uh, when it comes to the filibuster. Take a look at this. President Biden says there is a real possibility that Democrats invoke the nuclear option and change the filibuster rules to raise the debt limit. So let me break this down for you a little bit. The debt limit, for those of you who don't know, it is, it's totally arbitrary. And what it does is it's about paying back money that we've already spent. So with the previous budget, we spent a certain amount of money. That's guaranteed to be spent. The debt limit as it sits right now is not enough to accommodate for the previous budget. So you have to raise the debt limit in order simply to protect the full faith and credit of the United States government, not default on our debt, and not plunge the world economy into a recession at the very least, but possibly even a depression. So you don't have a choice. Now, the debt limit is totally arbitrary, and it, I mean, we shouldn't even have one because anybody who's familiar with modern monetary theory or current economic understanding, even basic uh, Keynesian economics, 
you know that the way a, a government works, it's not the same thing as the way a household works. You can't make the comparison between Bob down the street and the most powerful government on planet Earth, a government that has its own sovereign currency. So the whole idea of like balancing the budget, and the debt and the deficit, and we have to make sure that we look out for that. Guys, there's a reason why, uh, you know, when they spend on the military, for example, none of it's paid for. They just spend $800 billion. They're like, okay, we can do that because we prioritize it, and it is what it is, and we're the U.S. government. Of course we can do it. So when it comes to that, when it comes to tax cuts for the rich, nobody says anything about paying for it. It's only when it's for regular people that they talk about paying for it. So you are absolutely able to and allowed to, and it's even a good thing to deficit spend when you're in a recession because the government should be the spender of the last resort to keep the economy going and functioning. So the debt limit is totally arbitrary. All we're talking about here is paying back money we already spent or not defaulting on that debt. So this is a standoff that happens all the time in Washington. It's stupid. It's a waste. Uh, it's a game of chicken. And the conversations happening now are, you obviously can't do nothing. That's no option. You can't leave the debt limit as it is because then you do destroy the full faith credit of the United States government. You just can't do it. Um, so you can't do that. So the only other options are raise the debt limit. <laughs> so do it through Congress or mint a trillion-dollar coin, which is what people are talking about, which is just a way to circumvent the debt limit uh, and, and do it in a way where Congress isn't even involved. So some people find the idea of a trillion-dollar coin goofy. Some people don't. Uh, but what happened is Democrats were like, okay, step aside. We'll raise the debt limit on our own. And Mitch McConnell goes, no, we're filibustering that. So McConnell tells Democrats, do it on your own. Democrats go, okay. And he goes, LOL, just kidding. I'm blocking you from doing it on your own. So you can't do it with 51 votes. Can't do it with 51 votes. You need 60. So they're not going to give you the votes that are necessary. So what Biden is thinking about is saying, on the issue of the, of the debt limit, we're going to make an exception in the filibuster, which we could do with 51 votes. And the exception is, for raising the debt limit, you only need 51 votes. So um, here's the takeaway from this story. First of all, should they do it? Absolutely, no doubt about it. Obvious thing, most obvious thing in the world. Make it so you only need 51 votes to raise the debt limit and raise the debt limit and be done with it, avert this self-made catastrophe. But here's the thing. What Biden is showing here is they have the ability to do this on literally any part of the Biden agenda if they want to. All you need is 51 votes to make an exception to the filibuster rule. So with 51 votes, you could say, ah, you know what? We're reforming the filibuster back to the original filibuster where you have to talk the entire time to block it. Well, if you do that, they're not going to filibuster nearly as much because you can't really just talk forever now, can you? So you can either reform it back to the original filibuster. You can reform it in other ways. You could create loopholes for more issues in the filibuster, including the debt limit, including other aspects of his, his uh, agenda. So what he's showing here is actually I have the power to do pretty much anything by either eliminating the filibuster, reforming the filibuster, or, or creating more loopholes in the filibuster. There's already like over 200 loopholes in the filibuster where certain things don't need 60 votes. Supreme Court nominations don't need 60 votes. That was changed recently. You know, other court uh, nominations don't need 60 votes. That was changed recently. Um, there's a whole list of stuff that we went through previously on this show uh, that you don't need 60 votes for. Certain, like revoking of certain uh, federal regulations that just went into place, you only need 51 votes. So add, of course, add the debt limit, raising the debt limit, 
add that as a loophole, and add the rest of your fucking agenda, or just abolish the filibuster, or reform the filibuster. So the fact that they're not doing it is a self-inflicted wound is the point. So it's weird to talk about, we'll get rid of the filibuster, but only for this thing. If you really believe in the rest of your agenda, you should do something on the rest of your agenda. And don't tell me it's crazy to have 51 votes beat 49 votes. That's called democracy. You know, uh, that's the way it should work. That's definitely the way it should work. What I want to, you know, just reform it instead of abolishing it, because then you have the opportunity to block when you're in the minority. Yeah, I do kind of want to have the out if the Republicans are trying to start another war. Um, You know, I think it would be cool to be able to block it from the minority and truly filibuster it. So, yeah, maybe you want to have an out and just reform it instead of abolishing it. But I certainly would take abolishing it over doing nothing. So he's letting you know there are things he could do. Uh, but unfortunately, he's only considering it for this one thing. So there's a big scandal going on with Facebook. Facebook, by the way, went down the other day for four hours, five hours, something like that. It's the longest outage maybe they've ever had. Um, total mess. There's also this Facebook whistleblower who just came out who's saying, There's not enough protections for kids. There's not enough content moderation. They rely too heavily on AI, and AI only gets 10% or 20% of what they should get. So that's all that's going on with Facebook right now. There was a hearing over it in Congress. By the way, senators and congresspeople have no idea what the fuck's going on with any of this technology stuff, and they ask ridiculous ridiculous questions. They don't have the technical know-how to even have these conversations. Um, But on CNN, they were talking about Facebook, and look at what their takeaway is. Facebook always says, well, you know, we, we walk a line between, you know, letting people, you know, the free and fair flow of information. There are ways to do that. We figured out ways to do that in most people in legacy media, not everybody in legacy media, because there are people and propaganda networks in legacy media that spread BS and don't face enough consequences. But I do think that social media, just like any other um, media company, especially legacy media and traditional media, there should be, they should they should face some sort of consequences, and they shouldn't be regulated. That's just, and at the very least, what you put on there should be true, and if it's not true, then it should be actionable. Don Lemon, thanks for getting up there. That's a terrible idea. So let me explain what should really go on with Facebook. Serious people are talking about we should break up Facebook. It's, it's a monopoly. It has incredibly deleterious effects, and it should be broken up into smaller companies. That's one school of thought. Is that reasonable? Yes. Um, another school of thought is to nationalize Facebook. Nationalize all the social media companies because this is effectively the new public square. Um, that also, I think, is reasonable, although that, I do think that's a little more extreme, if you ask me. Um, another option is simply regulate all the giant social media companies like their public utilities. So they could remain private, but regulate them like their public utilities And the reason why I support that is you can um, basically expand free speech protections and constitutional protections into the digital square, into the public square. That's always been my position. Uh, Regulate all the social media companies like their public utilities. um, And I think then we would be in a much better position. Would you still have, you know, misinformation sometimes spread? Of course, but misinformation spreads online and not online all the time. 
You know, it's not like there's anything you could do to protect everybody from the spread of misinformation. The only way you could protect people from it is what? To have some sort of ministry of truth that determines what's true and what's false. But then the classic conundrum arises. Who watches the watchmen? Who's going to fact check the fact checkers? And what are the fact checkers biases and who are they beholden to and why do they have all the right answers and do they have all the right answers? And of course the answer to that is no. But what Don Lemon is proposing here is effectively Facebook should be censored more. It should be moderated and curated more. There should be more deplatforming. And if there's spreading of misinformation, find them for it or take some sort of legal action against them. How do you not realize that you're opening Pandora's box? And how do you not realize that that is totally arbitrary and subjective. You know, he talks about there, oh, there are other networks that don't care as much about the truth. True, I think Fox News is overall worse and way more incorrect about stuff than CNN or MSNBC. But, but, don't tell me CNN and MSNBC get stuff right, because they don't. They both spread a conspiracy theory under the last president for an extended period of time called Russiagate. Everybody thought, oh, uh, you know, Mueller's going to drag Trump out of the White House in handcuffs because he's Vladimir Putin's puppet. That wasn't true. It was, and a lot of the stories are verifiably false. Like when they said Paul Manafort met with Julian Assange in the embassy. That's not true. It didn't happen. So many of these Russiagate stories imploded. Somebody was just arrested linked to the Hillary Clinton campaign for spreading fraudulent shit during Russiagate. So we know it's bogus. We know the claims they made were preposterous. They were the conspiracy theorists on that front. So my question for Don Lemon is this. Should anybody pushing Russiagate have been censored, deplatformed, pulled down, fined? Should you be fined? Should CNN be fined? Should MSNBC be fined? Should you be pushed down in the algorithm, swept under the rug, pushed aside, not allowed to thrive? I would say no. I think organically people should turn away from your bullshit commentary. Because, you know, this is one of those areas where you can't pick winners and losers based on your perception of stuff because your perception might be flawed. My perception might be flawed. Your perception might be flawed. There is no ministry of truth. It's impossible to do it accurately and correctly. So the least bad of all bad options is have a relatively hands-off algorithm where it's somewhat of a meritocracy where the cream rises to the top. And guess what? Some charlatans and con men are going to rise to the top and spread erroneous information. That's called par for the course. Now, if they threaten people or harass people or dox people or do direct threats of violence, that's a different story. There you could take action against that because that's also illegal under the First Amendment. But anything outside of that, I don't care about your opinion. What you want to do is use your power to get yourself to the top, to the front of the line in terms of trustworthiness. So in other words, even if you can prove to Don Lemon, and of course we can, that CNN and MSNBC are really bad at spreading misinformation, he would say, well, we're the best, so we should still be on top. No, no, no. This is the way that they crush alternative media and independent media and other voices. And this is what they've done on YouTube. We've told you about this a million times. There was a time when this, we had exponential growth on this show, exponential. Because what would happen? We talk about news and politics. People like it. It spreads a lot. Then, because it's popular, because it spreads a lot, the algorithm rewards that and says, we're going to keep showing it to new people. So more people subscribe, more people subscribe. Well, guess what? YouTube unveiled some new rules where they said, oh, borderline content is going to be treated differently now. You know what that means? I'm considered borderline content, even though I'm right about a hell of a lot more than CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. So we don't get shown to new people nearly as much. So we don't have as much subscriber growth. In fact, we don't have any subscriber growth for the past two months or whatever it is. 
Now, some of that was because of a feud that I got into, but now we're well beyond that feud. And so you would think that, hey, you'd get back to growth. We are not. We are not. And that's not because the show is so different. That's not because, oh, you lost a lot of popularity. It's because they don't show it to new people. Don't take my word for it. Look at a lot of the other outlets as well that are in the same space that I am. So this is the result. Let's push everybody else down in the algorithm. Let's put us at the top of it. And even if we have misinformation and get stuff wrong, we don't care. We should still be rewarded. Put us on the top of Facebook. Put us on the top of Twitter. Put us on the top of YouTube. That is what they did in YouTube. They want the same thing with Facebook. Because you know what? On Facebook, it really is right-wing central at this point. Why? Because a lot more boomers use it. So you do have, like, Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire. They're oftentimes at the top of the ranking. Do I like that? No. But what's the answer to that? Fucking work harder and dethrone them and debunk them and get more popular and try to overcome them in a fair algorithm play field. But they don't want to do that. They want to just jump the line. Hey, there's a lot of stuff here we don't like, so put us on top. Facebook has a million problems. What we shouldn't do is come up with a whole new set of problems and propose a solution that's worse than the current situation. And that's what they want. More censorship, more deplatforming, more, but less of a meritocracy algorithm and just redirect us to the front of the line like they did on YouTube. Do it on Twitter, do it on Facebook, do it wherever. Um, and it's, a, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And you want to, like, find them for misinformation? Wait, how is Facebook supposed to be responsible for, you know, Aunt Bernice in Tampa Bay, Florida, who thinks that Fauci is, is a, a demon pedophile? Like, what do you, you want to find them because somebody else is an asshole? You have to think about these social media platforms the way you think of, like, a phone company. Now, you call your drug dealer on the phone and you want to get some weed or some shit. Should AT&T be fined because of that call? You're allowing illegal activity to happen. Or you have a conversation where you're saying politically incorrect things. Should uh, AT&T be fined for that? Or should you be kicked off of the platform and not allowed to make phone calls anymore? No, everybody looks at a phone, uh, the phone service providers like they're just a medium. They're, they don't do curation or filtering. That'd be stupid. That's the same shit for social media. That's how you have to look at it. Because any other way of doing it is worse. I get that it's bad now. It would be a hell of a lot worse if you start censoring and deplatforming and curating and filtering and micromanaging every little thing. So I couldn't disagree with them more. Uh, this is real Orwellian shit, and I hate it. Okay, next. So there's an interesting feud going on right now. LeBron James came out the other day and said, listen, I got the vaccine. My family got the vaccine. I did it for me and my family. Um, I think it's the right thing to do. But it's not my place. I'm not a doctor. It's not my place to tell anybody else what to do or what not to do. Um, that's personal, and it's up to them. So that was the gist of, of his comments. Well, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar heard that, and he didn't take kindly to it. So take a look here. Uh, this is in Mediaite. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar passionately slams LeBron's failure to endorse COVID vaccine. Quote, could be deadly. LeBron James decided the COVID vaccine was good enough for himself and his family, but the NBA superstar, I'm reading from the piece now, refuses to endorse it for others, calling it a personal choice. According to activist humanitarian and NBA legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, LeBron's selectivity on social issues is just plain wrong. So the point that uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar makes is um, him being wrong on this could be deadly, especially to the black community. 
he says that throughout LeBron's 18-year career, he loves to take a stand on stuff like racism, um, police brutality, and various social issues. So what his point is, if you're aggressive on that front and you tell people what's correct, why wouldn't you do the same thing on this front? Now, 95% of the NBA has received the vaccine, including LeBron. Um, But, of course, there's a handful of holdouts, including Kyrie Irving, who are anti-vax, and now there's this media narrative um, around them, and it's become a polarizing topic. You also had um, Draymond Green the other day take a position that was, I think, different from LeBron's and that it was more aggressive. And Draymond Green was saying, listen, that's totally none of my business. People can do whatever the fuck they want. It's anti-freedom for me to force other people to do shit that they might not want to do. That was Draymond uh, Green's commentary. Um, And one of the points that Draymond Green said is this is against everything America is supposed to stand for. So Abdul-Jabbar's response to that was, on the surface, it appears Draymond and LeBron are arguing for the American ideal of individual freedom of choice, but they offer no arguments in support of it, nor do they define the limits of when one person's choice is harmful to the community. Then he talks about seatbelts as an example and education for children. Um, Quote, if I press hard against institutional racism, if I press hard against police brutality, if I press hard against recent laws making it harder for minorities to vote, if I press hard against child porn, if I press hard to support in support of Me Too, am I automatically wrong? That's what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said. On the contrary, the passion of those, argue, uh, the passion of those urging vaccines might suggest there's some urgency to their opinion. Okay, so you get the gist of it. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is saying, just endorse the vaccine and tell people to get it and it'll be better off. Now, so what do I make of this? What's my take on it? Um, everybody knows my stance. I took the vaccine. Pretty much everybody I know took the vaccine. Um, it works. It's important. It could save your life. Uh, all the, the data is overwhelming on this, man. Anybody who's telling you the data is not overwhelming is absolutely cherry-picking some misleading anecdotal shit. I'll tell you that up front. So should you get the vaccine? Yes. Um, having said that, I don't understand why Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is going after LeBron when there are way worse and bigger fish to fry who have way worse opinions. So in other words, you could have written an article against Kyrie Irving here because Kyrie Irving's position is, I'm not getting the vaccine. Nobody else should get the vaccine. And by the way, it's got microchips in it. So he's gone full conspiracy theorist, totally incorrect, really just loony stuff that is factually wrong. He's gone down a bad rabbit hole with that. I I don't understand why Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wouldn't, let's say, debunk Kyrie Irving point by point and say, obviously you're wrong. Not only should you get the vaccine, other people should get the vaccine too. Here's why. Here are the charts. Here's the data, so on and so forth. So I guess my issue with this piece is um, I'm not even necessarily convinced that the way LeBron approached this won't get more people to get vaccinated. Because, again, LeBron's comments were, I'm vaccinated, my family got vaccinated, Um, it's the right thing for us, other people could do whatever they want. I think there are going to be plenty of people who hear that who think, well, LeBron got it and his family got it, so maybe I should get it. So in other words, it's not like he's not making a sell on the vaccine. He's just doing a soft sell on the vaccine. You know, like there's an argument here for a good cop, bad cop approach where some people drive a hard bargain and a hard line and say, you better get vaccinated because this isn't just about you. This is about the community. Uh, It's obviously the right thing to do it, so on and so forth. 
And LeBron did endorse the vaccine by saying, I took it and my family took it, so obviously I think it's a good de- idea. But, hey, you do what you want. That, I think that's like a soft sell of it. So I don't even think that it's, that it's being uh, categorized accurately by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, this idea that he's, like, not endorsing the vaccine. Well, he kind of is. He's just doing it in a soft way. Now, you might agree with the hardline approach. Okay, but you do the hardline approach then. So I don't, I guess I just don't get um, why one would be hostile to his take on this in a more aggressive way than he's hostile to people who are flat out anti-vax. I I just, I don't understand that. Um, And I also don't like, okay, so my position on it, for example, is I'm in favor of the vaccine. I, I took it. I think everybody should take it. But I want to give people the option of you either have to get vaccinated or you have to get tested. So would Kareem Abdul-Jabbar look at my opinion and say, well, you're anti-vaccine and you're not promoting the vaccine. I just said I'm for it and everybody should get it. And my policy preference is people either have to get the vaccine or have to get tested. The fact that I'm giving people an out of testing, would he categorize that as you're anti-vaccine or you're not endorsing the vaccine? Because I don't think that's a fair categorization. I think I'm massively pro-vaccine. I'm just against a hard mandate on it. So I do think it's a little weird that nuances are being totally glossed over in the conversation. So anyway, that's my commentary on it. I will say overall, though, of course, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is correct. Everybody should get the vaccine. Now, the fact that LeBron made a soft sell on it as opposed to a hard sell, am I outraged by that? No. There are much bigger fish to fry who are much more incorrect than LeBron James. Okay, next. This one's hilarious. You guys are going to get a kick out of this one. From Raw Story, GOP lawmaker says COVID deaths are a Vatican plot and vaccines contain living organisms with tentacles. Huh? Representative Ken Whaler is now facing bipartisan calls to be stripped of leadership, including from Governor GOP Governor Chris Sununu, according to the accusations Uh, The state House Finance Committee chairman circulated a series of bizarre COVID-19 conspiracy theories laced with attacks on the Catholic Church. Quote, Sununu's statement comes after Whaler, 79, emailed colleagues uh, colleagues materials full of COVID conspiracy theories, including a discredited false report that claims COVID deaths are driven by a plot orchestrated out of Vatican City, Washington, D.C., and London, reported Josh Rogers. It's all one huge puppet theater where the majority of people, even most of the people who are complicit, haven't gotten, got the slightest clue what is going on mm-hmm. and how everyone is being played, the report states. Among other false claims, the report says some COVID vaccines include living organisms with tentacles. According to WMUR's Adam Sexton, uh, Whaler also called the Catholic Church a criminal network full of Satanists and Luciferians dabbling in dark ancient spiritual practices. Uh, counterpoint, sir, it's not full of Satanists, Luciferians, and dark ancient spiritual practices, it's full of pedos. (laughs) By the way, bad time to stumble across this story because an article just came out about the French Catholic Church where they, I mean, we already knew this from previous stories and previous years and previous scandals, but they were doing pedophilia like that was their job. It was like a conveyor belt of pedophilia in the Catholic Church. They're terrible, and there's a huge institutional pedophilia problem 
And, of course, they're liars, and the stuff is fairy tales, and all that is true. But they didn't come up with the COVID plot, and the vaccines don't have living organisms with tentacles. Look, it is depressing, isn't it, that people can, some percentage of people will believe anything. You just have to catch them at the right time in their life, and they're naive enough where, you know, some random blog with some random asshole writer could convince a a sitting politician with a tremendous amount of power of the most insane theories you can think of. I will say, it is absolutely shocking and astonishing that this is the first time I've read about something being blamed on a religious group, and it's not the Jews. Almost always it's like, you know, the secret Jewish plot to do X, Y, or Z. This is one time they're coming after the religion I happen to be born into and raised into. Don't worry, I wasn't molested. Um, the Catholic Church. I mean, there was, back in the day, there was a decent amount, like, there, I don't know, if, obviously you don't remember this, because most of you weren't alive at the time, but the fact that JFK was Catholic was a big scandal. And there was this argument that his political enemies would make against him, like, he's going to take his marching orders from the Pope. So that's, that's going to violate separation of church and state. So there was a time when, there, you know, Catholics weren't actually viewed as Christians or part of the uh, Protestant majority, but we're not in that time anymore. You know, everybody views Catholic as sort of just standard, similar to standard Protestant Christian, and so there's not really bigotry against them to any serious degree. But here you have an instance where you kind of make that argument. It's those dirty Catholics in Vatican City. Look at what they're doing. They release COVID on the world, and the vaccine has octopuses or squid in it or something. Come on, son. Come on, dog. I don't understand how people can be so naive. Like, some conspiracy theories sound reasonable at face value, and so those I get people sort of going down that path. And, hey, sometimes they're right. Sometimes conspiracies are correct, you know? Uh, But this is one where it's like, really? This is the one you fell for? This one. Living organisms with tentacles and vaccines, and the Catholic Church unleashed COVID on the world. I mean, I guess points for pivoting away from the anti-Chinese bigotry, right? China virus is those dirty agents. We all know that's who's responsible for the virus. He's like, no, I got it. The Catholics. Who's going to come up with one now with the Mormons are responsible for it? Anybody got that? Who's got Mormon virus? Anybody got Mormon virus on their COVID bingo card? Let's see. It's so, he's so crazy that a Republican governor was like, this motherfucker's crazy. <laughs> like, we, uh, we got to strip him of, of leadership positions. This is insane. He's crazy. He's, he's, he's gone more crazy than Alex Jones. What am I supposed to do? Sit there and allow this guy to make decisions? I think that says a lot. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. So there's a lot of union activity going on right now. You want to know why? Because the economy is a giant scam. Workers are getting hosed. We just had a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic. And uh, this was used as a Trojan horse to cut benefits for people and cut back on hours, cut back on pay. There's issues with the supply chain. There's all sorts of problems. Um, But workers are fighting back because they are getting screwed. So take a look at this. This is from um, Jonah Furman, who's actually a labor reporter, one of the few in the country, so credit to him for tracking this here. This week's union roundup is a big one. Lots of strike activity all over the country. On strike, 2,000 Buffalo hospital workers, 2,000 Washington carpenters, 1,000 Alabama miners, 700 Massachusetts nurses, 450 West Virginia steel workers, 420 Kentucky whiskey workers, 350 Denver janitors, 300 Los Angeles airspace manufacturers, 
200 Reno bus drivers, 100 Pennsylvania teachers, 75 San Antonio sympathy, uh, sympathy, symphony, I'm an idiot, musicians, 50 West Virginia machinists, um, and then we have potential strikes, 65,000 film and TV workers, that's wild, 37,000 Kaiser healthcare workers, 10,000 John Deere manufacturing workers, thousands of grad students at Harvard, Columbia, and Illinois State University, and 20,000 California State University faculty members, 2,000 telecom workers in California, 400 hospital workers in Oregon, 350 hospital workers in California, school bus drivers in Warwick, Rhode Island, uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and Elk Grove, California. God diggity damn, son. God damn. Um, here's why we're talking about this, because nobody else is going to. So credit to this labor reporter. There are very few outlets in the country doing a real good job reporting on serious issues. So you've got to give a shout-out to the Daily Poster. You've got to give a shout-out to uh, Jordan Chariton and uh, Status Coup, um, Sludge. There's a number that are doing a, a great job, but it's few and far between, and they don't get the accolades that they deserve. So credit to this labor reporter for doing it. Let me show you these charts, because this says everything right here. Share of union income going to the top, excuse me, share of income, not union income, share of income going to the top 10%. And then the red line is union membership. So blue line is income to the top 10%, red line is union membership. Look at that. So in other words, the more unionization there is, the less money the top 10% have, which means the more money the working class has. And then, of course, there's that giant break apart. Uh, now look at this chart. Worker productivity, compensation, and union membership. So you have productivity goes up. Union membership is relatively high early on, around, the around 1960. Um, as soon as union membership plummets, hourly compensation decouples from the productivity line, and people get to start getting paid way less. So they're super productive, but they don't get paid in alignment with their productivity. Now, some of that has to do with, um, you know, technology. That's a part of it. But a lot of it has to do directly with union membership. When union rates decline, the working class doesn't do as well. I mean, it's, it's very straightforward. All the data shows this. In the right-to-work states, workers make less, and they have worse benefits. When you're in a union, you get paid more, you have better benefits, and you're treated better. I mean, these are just facts. So if you want to have a healthy working class, you need unions, and you need unions who are going to fight for workers. And so that brings me to corporate media. They're not going to cover what's going on with these unions because corporate media, I mean, they are corporations. They care about the bottom line. They hire people who do not rock the boat too much. So they're just not interested and don't care about labor struggles around the country. How many of the big outlets have straight-up labor reporters? How many? I don't know. I'm seriously asking the question. I don't know of any. I mean, Jeff Stein at the Washington Post is a great economics reporter, but it's more he covers like White House stuff. It's not purely labor. How many labor reporters are there out there at big publications? I don't know of any. That's on purpose. That's by design. They don't want you to know that you have power if you're in a union. They don't want you to know that your wages can go up. They don't want you to know that your benefits can be better. They don't want you to know you can get paid time off, paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave. They don't want you to know that. And so you're left to go to YouTube shows like mine to tell you about a dozen strikes going on around the country that are, the media is quiet on. It's really pathetic. Solidarity to all those workers. And um, we need to greatly increase union membership in this country. That is one of the most important solutions. All right, y'all. 
We're done. Love you, baby. No show Monday, and actually on Wednesday, there will be no live show, but I'll be doing a show from D.C. So anyway, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, watch Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. We have Jeff Stein, the economics reporter, on. Talk about reconciliation. It's going to be great. Uh, have a good one, y'all. Peace.